The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 3 to 6. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive." though some have fallen asleep. This morning, I want you to grab a Bible and put on your thinking cap. So if you're new to Capital, this is what we do, is we open up the Bible, we look at the Word of God, and we bring out what's in the Word of God, and we think about it, okay? And what I want to do this morning is I want to begin with the resurrection, the resurrection as a historical fact. And I want to reason from the resurrection all the way to your experience, okay? So I want to take what happened 2,000 years ago with the empty tomb, and I want to bring it to bear all the way to where you're at right now. But to do that, you're going to need your Bible and you're going to need to use your mind, okay? What Paul is saying right here in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15 is that the resurrection is a historical fact, that he was seen by over 500 people. And and, and basically, uh, what he's saying is, some are dead, but you can still go talk to them. We can prove this. You can know that the resurrection is a historical fact, and we can make uh, a whole apologetic for the the fact of the resurrection, but that's not what I want to do this morning. I want to begin by asking the question, why does the resurrection matter to you? Okay? I'm I'm going to ask and answer three questions this morning. That's the first one. Why does the resurrection matter today in the 21st century? Why does it matter? So what that Jesus has risen from the dead? What does it mean to you? And of course, the way that the New Testament answers that is that Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of the future resurrection of the believer. That's why it matters. If it didn't mean anything else, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about that today. But the resurrection 2,000 years ago is the point and the basis of our hope today of a future resurrection. 
I want to show you this. Look down at verse 12, same chapter. Look at verse 12, and look at how Paul argues this, okay? He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see the, the parallel he's drawing between these historical events? He's saying if, if there is no future resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. That's how closely these historical events are tied together. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If there is no resurrection in the past, there's no resurrection in the future. If there's no resurrection in the future, there's no resurrection in the past. Verse 14, look what he says. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's pointless. We are even preaching, or sorry, we are even found to be to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he says, our preaching is pointless, Christianity is pointless, if there is no resurrection, either in the past or in the future. Then verse 16, he basically restates verse 13, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So I, I think the logic here is crystal clear about what Paul is saying. He's saying these events are tied together. Look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Anybody here spent some time on a farm? Anybody spent some time on a farm? What is the first fruits? The first fruits. The first fruits are those first pieces of fruit of the harvest. If you have an apple orchard, it's, that, it's those first couple apples that, that come, and you go and you pick those apples, and those are the first fruits of the whole harvest that is to come, Right? It's, it's symbolic of everything that's going to come behind it. And what Paul is saying is, is that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection of the believer. In other words, this harvest has already begun, okay? Listen to what Luther says, Martin Luther. He says, by calling Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul wishes to signify that the resurrection is to be viewed and understood as having already begun in Christ, indeed, as being more than half finished, and that this remnant of death is to be regarded as no more than a deep sleep, and that the future resurrection of our body will not differ from suddenly awakening from such a sleep. For the main and best part of this has already come to pass, namely that Christ, our head, has risen. This resurrection will take place at the end of the age when the Lord Jesus returns. He will raise everyone, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. And the Christian will receive a resurrection body like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus' resurrection body 
is, is different from this body that we have this morning. Remember, uh, Paul says later in this chapter that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual body, but yet it's a body that you can see. Uh, we will not age in this body. We will not suffer in this body. We will not mourn in this body. We will not die in this body, and we will not marry in this body. Remember, Jesus said that in the kingdom we are not uh, given in marriage. But we will still eat. I know some of you were probably worried about that. You remember Jesus on the shore with the disciples, with Peter and John, and he ate those fish, right? There, there's, there's, there's a connection with our current bodies, but yet it's a different body. It's a body like Christ had in the resurrection. This is what Sproul says. He says, our new bodies will be incorruptible without decay, illness, pain, or death. There will be added power to our present bodies as they will be raised in honor, power, and glory. Our bodies will be fashioned to be like the glorified body of Jesus. And won't that be a glorious day when the Lord comes back and we are resurrected in these new bodies and we'll spend all of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? New heavens, new earth, no more pain, no more suffering. And you know what I think the best part will be is no more sin. Your struggle and my struggle with sin will be done. And it'll be perfect, heavenly bliss forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be holy as he is holy. So that's the answer to the first question. What is the significance of the resurrection for us? It's that it's the first fruits of our resurrection. It's the first fruits. The second question I want to ask is, how can you be sure that you will be raised in that resurrection? Okay? How can you be sure that you will experience that resurrection of life and not the resurrection of judgment. Did you know that the Bible says that you can be 100% sure right now that you will experience the resurrection in the future? That you can have 100% certainty? So how can we know right now that our bodies will be raised to the resurrection of life? And the answer is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Turn to the left to, to Romans chapter 8. Just a few pages. What you have to understand about Paul is that Paul had a logical mind. He, he reasons from deduction. And so, to, to stay with his logic, this is why earlier I said you need to put on your thinking cap. You're going to have to think here, okay? I want you to think about what Paul is saying. Look at verse 10. Paul says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead 
because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 11, and then we're going to come back to 10. He says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So just broad overview, do you see the connection that's being made? If Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you can know with 100% certainty that you will also be raised from the dead. Do you see the connection? All right, let, let me go through the details. He says, if Christ is in you, how can Christ be in you? I thought Christ was at the right hand of the Father. Well, if you look at the, the verse preceding, he says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The Holy Spirit and, and, and the Lord Jesus are so closely connected as the three persons of the Trinity that the Holy Spirit's presence in the believer, in the believer is essentially the same as the presence of Christ in the believer. And indeed, this is what Jesus promised, right? Matthew 28, 20, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. John 6, 56, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So the Lord Jesus promised that his presence would be with us through the Holy Spirit. But notice what Paul says. He says, and again, he's talking about the Christian here. He's talking about the believer, he says, the, even though Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. What does that mean? He's simply talking about your physical body. He's saying, your body is in the process of dying. Even though you're a believer, you still will die. That, that is a fact. Every single person in this room, unless the Lord comes back, will die and will die one of two ways. You're either going to go out in a blaze of glory, right, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, or in a car crash, fiery car crash, or a plane crash like Buddy Holly. Something's going to happen to you where you're just going to have a split second when you realize that you're about to go. Or you're going to die laying on your bed in hospice care in old age, or facing a disease, and you're going to be staring there at the ceiling, counting down the moments until you close your eyes to the resurrection. Those are the two ways that you can go. But the point is, we're all going to die, right? Hebrews 9, it's appointed that every man die once, and then comes the judgment. It doesn't matter how many burpees, 5Ks, or trips to Whole Foods you make. <laughs> that appointment is waiting for you, right? And, and that's true still for the believer. We all face this literal death. But, and this is, this, this, is, this is the contrast. Look what Paul says. But, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the life that he's talking about there is the resurrection life. How do I know that? I know that from the context of the next verse. Look at verse 11. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So look at that word dwell. It's the Greek verb oikai. Paul uses that same verb in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? It means that the Holy Spirit makes his home in your heart, that the Holy Spirit abides in your soul. And notice this Trinitarian statement. Who's the he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead in verse 11? That's the Father. God the Father raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And how will God the Father give life to our mortal bodies? Through the Holy Spirit. Through His Holy Spirit who dwells in you. The same way that He raised Jesus from the dead through the power of the Spirit. So Paul wants you to reason to this conclusion, okay? Are you using your logic here? Do you, you see what he's saying? He's saying, God the Father raised the Son by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you can know that you will be raised from the dead in the future by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the connection. That's the logic that he's using. And this logic has powerful implications for your life. Because what this means is that if you are a believer and you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you can face death without fear. You can face your death and the death of other believers without fear. One of the things that I think is a distinguishing quality of the Christian is that we die well. We die differently than anybody else. I remember when my grandfather I was with him when he got the, the death notice there in, in the Houston Medical Center, and, and uh, he just, after the doctor uh, walked out of the room, he basically had weeks, maybe he ended up living two months after this. And uh, he, he looked at me and he goes, well, Grant, you know, David, the David in the Bible lived 70 years. I've lived 80. So I've been doing pretty good. Uh, and then he said, I'm ready to go be with the Lord. Let's go get some fajitas. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? You do that because you know your future. And you do that through this logic that Paul's giving us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was on his deathbed, he told his family, he said, do not pray for healing. I'm ready for the glory. That's the hope of the believer. That's the steadfast assurance that we have because of the Holy Spirit in our life. I know right now that I will be resurrected, whether it's today, tomorrow, or a millennia from now. I know, because the Holy Spirit's in my life. So that's the answer to the second question. It's how you know. 
because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. All right. So I told you we were going to argue this down all the way to your experience, right? So what's the third question? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is in your life? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is in your life? If that's how you know that you'll be resurrected from the dead, then that's the most important question that you could ask. Is how can you know right now that the Holy Spirit's in your life? Let me give you four tests, and they're right here in Romans chapter 8. The first one is, I think, the most important test, and that's this. You know the freedom of the Christian. You know the freedom of the Christian. Look at verse 1. Look all the way up at verse 1 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, by the way, the whole chapter is about assurance, assurance of salvation, how you can know that you know that you know that you're saved. And what Paul's going to say, and I'm not going to do it, we don't have time to do an exegesis of, of this whole chapter, so I'm just going to, I'm going to give you these tests just in, in from 30,000 feet, okay? And I'll, I'll briefly explain these verses, but I'm not, we don't have time to, to do an exposition of these verses. But notice what Paul says in verses We'll look at just these first four verses here. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some condemnation? No. No condemnation. The therefore is there because he's been talking about the law and how the law always condemns us. You, you compare yourself to the perfect law of God and you realize that you fall short. That's why the law is there. Every time you realize that you fall short of the law of God. But Paul says for the believer, he says there is therefore now no condemnation at the final judgment. In other words, you live with this realization that you are forgiven, that your sins have been washed away. Notice that last clause, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that is the defining quality of the Christian, is that you have been united to Christ in faith. The way that the early Christians define themselves is not by calling themselves Christians, but just simply saying, in Christ. We're in Christ. We're united to Christ. And it's through that uniting to Christ that we have no more condemnation. Here's why. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life, look, notice this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so please listen carefully. The law of sin and death is very simple. And it is this, if you break the law of God, you will die. That's the law of sin and death. Doesn't matter how good you try to be, if you break the law, you deserve death. The wages of sin is death, James 2.10. If you stumble and you break the law in one point, you're guilty of all of it. What every other religion in the world tries to do is self-justification. 
okay? There's no other religion in the world that has an atonement for sin. Every other religion says, okay, I know that you've broken the law, you've done bad things, but if you're really, really, really good enough, God will just kind of sweep these things under the rug and you'll get in. That's what every other religion does. But you know what? The law of sin and death says something else. It says, nah, if you break the law, you deserve judgment. Right? I mean, who goes into a, a courtroom and you've committed a, a terrible crime, let's say, and you say, Judge, you know, I know I killed somebody, but if I just pick up trash on the side of the road for the rest of my life, will you let me off? Would that ever work in a court of law? Of course not. So why would we presume to bring our good works into the courtroom of God? will never work. That's the law of sin and death. You sin, you deserve judgment, and you deserve the eternal death. But, Paul says, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from that. And the way that the Holy Spirit sets you free from that is bringing to you the knowledge of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let me just explain that phrase very briefly. There's no problem with the law. He says it's weakened by the flesh. The, the law is not weakened. The, the law is perfect. But our flesh is weak, and we can't keep the law. And that's why the law is powerless to save anybody. The law cannot save you. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps before God by the law. The law simply condemns you. The law shows you that you have a problem. It's like going and getting an x-ray, and, and it shows you that you have a broken arm. You don't fix your arm by getting another x-ray. The law is the diagnostic that shows you that you have the problem. That's what the law does. The law can never save anybody because our flesh is weak. We sin. What happens if somebody says, puts one of those signs in their yard that says, get off my lawn? I know what I want to do. <laughs> right? I mean, what, when you encounter a law, what do you, I mean, we desire to break the law, right? That's the flesh. Our flesh is weak. So Paul says, look, but God did what the law could not do. And, and this is one of the most beautiful phrases in the New Testament. It's, this is the gospel in a nutshell. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, in our humanity, not that he uh, committed any sin. He, he never sinned, 
That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, for the purpose of paying the penalty for sin. And when Jesus was on the cross, God was pouring out the punishment that we deserved upon him. He was a substitutionary atonement. It was a payment that God was putting forth in order that our sin might be dealt with and God might be able to forgive us. And in that moment, when Jesus was on the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh because God is a just God and he and he simply cannot excuse sin. Next verse. This is where it comes to us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is what theologians call the great exchange that happens through faith. And, and here's what Paul's saying. Is, is he's saying, look, when you're united to Christ in faith, all of your sin is counted as cleansed by the cross. And all of Christ's righteousness, all of his perfect deeds are credited to you. All of that is given to you as a gift so that when God forgives you, he's not just sweeping sin under the rug, but the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. And that can only happen through a bloody atonement that Christ accomplished, and that can only happen through faith in us being united to Him. And so, this first test, what the Holy Spirit does is He presses us into this reality of freedom, that you know that you've trusted in Christ, you know that you stand on His righteousness, and so you know where you stand with God. And when you sin, you, you aren't worried in that moment that you're going to be condemned, in he, condemned to hell. That's why Martin Luther said, sin boldly. He, he, de, he didn't mean that we purposely go and sin. What he meant was, is that when we sin, we have a bold confidence of where we stand with God. That all of our sins have been washed away and that we stand on Christ's perfect righteousness. So this is the freedom of the Christian. The freedom of the Christian is that you're not trying to earn your way to heaven because, that, because you know that Christ already has. Now some of you this morning don't have that freedom, and you don't have that freedom because you're not a Christian. You don't have that freedom because you are trying to earn your way to God. And every day you wake up and you think to yourself, I hope I'm good enough today. I hope tomorrow I don't commit some grievous sin that disqualifies me. You're, if, if the way that you're planning on getting to heaven has anything to do with the first person pronoun I, you're not a Christian. It's because of what he has done. That's the freedom of the believer. How do, man, how do I know that I'm saved? It's because of what he's done for me, his righteousness. 
his death on the cross for sin. And I know I'm united to him in faith, and all of that is given to me as a precious gift. Doesn't depend on one ounce of my works. And the Holy Spirit impresses that upon your conscience. So that's the first test. Three quick more. Three more quickly. Okay. Two, you walk according to the Spirit. You walk according to the Spirit. Look at the second part of verse 4. He says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The walk means the general pattern of your life. If somebody were to get a video camera and, and take a, a video of your entire life, how could your life be described? And what Paul is saying is, is that your walk is one of two ways. It's either after the flesh or it's after the Spirit. How do you know the difference? Well, Paul says in Galatians 5, 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds like a reality TV show, doesn't it? But it is reality. This, this is the reality of people's lives. This, that right there is the reality, especially in this culture, just like it was in the culture 2,000 years ago. What Paul, I, I know that's a grievous list of sins, but that right there describes exactly who we are in the flesh. But the contrast is also true. If you walk according to the Spirit, this is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the question you have to ask is, which list defines your life? If you're looking at the, if you're looking at the video of your life, how you walk, which list defines your life? And if you walk according to the Spirit, then you've passed the test. If you walk according to the flesh, you failed that test. Third, third test, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Look at the next verse, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's really simple what Paul says here. He says, if you're in the flesh, you like to think about the things of the flesh. What are those? Sex, pleasure, fame, fortune, worldly success. You probably have anxiety because you don't have enough of those things that you want. But that's what you think about. That's what you think about. And I get, just personally speaking, when I'm around someone and all they talk about are those things, that makes me really nervous because it means that that's all they're thinking about. What you talk about is what you're thinking about. Ask those around you, what do I talk about? You know, if you claim to be a Christian, but all you talk about are the things of the world and not spiritual things, you can't be sure that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. 
The mouth speaks what's in the heart. And those who live according to the Spirit, look what Paul says, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They think about spiritual things. They think about the Word of God. They think about the the theology and the doctrines found in the Word of God. They think about Christ. They think about God. They think about the Holy Spirit. They think about the church. They think about the fellowship with other believers. They think about spiritual things. Here's the secret, all right? This is, this is the secret to the Christian life, really to, to all of life in general. You are controlled by what you think about. What we think changes what we love, and what we love changes what we do. And that's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.1. The life of holiness begins in the mind. So, how do you know you're in the Spirit? You think about spiritual things. And then the fourth test is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is the most experiential, it's the most subjective, and it's the most unusual. I want you to look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this verse the highest degree of spiritual assurance that a person can know because it's the direct witness of the Holy Spirit in your soul with your heart. And it's this witness of the Spirit testifying to you that you are indeed a child of God. And this witness is not something that is encountered on a normative, regular basis. You can't manipulate this witness. You can't say, Holy Spirit, give me this witness. You can pray for it, but it's something that happens rarely, where you experience the Holy Spirit flooding your heart and testifying to you that you are God's son or daughter. D.L. Moody said one time, he was walking in New York City, and he said I, he had this experience like he'd never had before, and he was just walking on the street. He was thinking about the cross, and he said, it was just like God flooded my heart with the love of God. Jonathan Edwards said one time he was, he was riding in the woods, he got off his horse, and he was thinking about heaven, and he said he was just transfixed in this great spiritual reality where the Holy Spirit was just testifying these things to him. And, but the, the, these occurrences are not manipulated. They can't be coerced, but they are, I think, the highest level of the assurance that the Holy Spirit can bring. So, let me walk you through the logic of this, okay? So, these are the four tests, how you can know that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. One, you know the freedom of the Christian. Two, 
you walk according to the Spirit. Three, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And four, you experience the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have those things, then here's the logic of what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and you know for certain you will be resurrected on the last day. Proof positive. Because, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has already been raised, and he's the first fruits of our future resurrection. You see how you, see how you can get from that all the way down to your own experience? And you can know, you can leave here right now with that 100% certainty that you will be raised from the dead. The question is, do you have that assurance? Maybe I was going through those tests, and you say, man, I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. I, I, I look at that list. I set my mind on the things of the flesh. That's what I think about. That's what I talk about. Yeah, I go to church, but I'm not really interested in the things of God. The pattern of my life is pride, envy, divisions, dissensions, sensuality, licentiousness, drunkenness. That's, that's what my life looks like. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, so on and so forth. If that's you, Here's the imperative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all of your sin gone and all of Christ's righteousness yours. You can leave this morning with the great freedom of the Christian. That burden trying to earn your way to God will be off your back and you can know that you will be resurrected from the dead, just like Christ. Heavenly Father, what glorious realities that these are real historical events, past resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and the future resurrection of the believer. And then, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit will indeed be resurrected from the dead on that glorious day. And not just that, but the certainty to know that we are indeed indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've spelled things out so clearly for us so that we can walk in complete assurance facing the grim realities of death and everything else in this life, knowing what will happen in the future, that our bodies will be raised to life, immortality, forever and ever and ever. Amen. In Christ's name. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.